Okay, welcome back to the Paperless Federalist. I'm Justin. And I'm Kerry. All right, Kerry, uh, we're back here again with uh, Federalist number eight, uh, The Consequences of Hostilities Between the States, written by Alexander Hamilton, Tuesday, November 20th, 1787. Uh, again, addressing to the people of the state of New York and is uh, the common practice here on the Paperless Federalist. Uh, either myself or Kerry like to kick it off with a quick uh, summation uh, of what the author is saying in a particular paper before we do a deep dive and uh, discuss the uh, and the nuts and bolts of things. So, Kerry, I think uh, you drew the short straw this time again, and uh, you're going to uh, do a short uh, summary for us. So if you don't mind, take it away. Go ahead. No problem. I, I don't mind doing a summation on this one. It's a one of the, it's a sort of an interesting, exciting paper. He really steps it up a notch. He basically, basically just says, what happens if the states get involved in an all-out shooting war? Yeah. Uh, I remember last uh, last episode in seven talked a little bit about uh, okay Hamilton's laying out this situation of uh, you know states could end up fighting in a shooting war states could up end up fighting in trade conflicts number not number eight <laughs> number eight is the shooting war that's what he's talking about um, and he's flat out appealing to fear in this one he's talking about the worst case apocalypse scenario that destroys all of America and grinds all of them into dust unless they adopt the Constitution over the Articles of Confederation. And to get a little bit more into specifics, he says, look, um, what's going to happen if the states all fall apart because of the weakness of the Articles of Confederacy? Um, because if the, the Articles are so weak, it's, that's what's naturally going to occur if we keep on the the road we're on right now. And he says, look, if we end up fighting, it's going to be worse than it is in Europe. Because over in Europe, uh, you can't, there's these standing armies. And because of standing armies, you can't just roll right into someone's country and despoil everything and take everything over and, uh, you know, uh, just rampage all over the place. Over in Europe, they got standing armies. They got forts everywhere. Uh, and so... You know, a lot of times when there's a war in Europe, uh, you go in, you maybe lay siege to a couple of forts, you get a couple of forts, then there's a peace treaty, you're all done. You trade one city and you're done. You know, it doesn't really change a lot at the borders of Europe. And, you know, he basically says the gains that you make are exhausting and limited compared to the effort that goes into it. The United States, if there was, well, not the, the states, if there was a, a war here, he says it would be different. There weren't a lot, of, there's not a lot of forts in the United States back then to the same degree there were in Europe. And there was, there's not a lot of uh, standing armies. So if someone musters up a large militia army real quick, uh, they could go in and get well into another state and take a lot of land before the other side has a chance to raise defense. So he says, look, because of that, it's going to be easy for each state to attack another state. And it's going to be hard to defend everything because there's not going to be the ability to have standing armies and there's not the infrastructure for forts. And so everybody is always going to be basically on the edge of war because they don't – if there's any sign the other, another state bordering them is going to attack them, then they're going to want to be the ones to strike first. And because these aren't standing armies of regulars who have some kind of discipline, these are just irregular guerrilla-type forces – you know, they're going to not follow any rules. And if they attack another state, they're going to destroy everything. They're going to burn down buildings. They're going to plunder all the stores, etc. Now, he says, look, nothing in the Constitution, if we adopt the Constitution, prohibits a standing army from being created. But, you know, we're going to need one. Whereas 
if the federal government falls apart from the weakness of the Confederacy, there could be there's going to be standing armies created by just out of necessities necessity. And paradoxically, he says the weaker states and groupings of states are going to be stronger initially than the larger states. And the reason he says that is the states that have no no other choice. You got your your Delaware, your Connecticut, your Rhode Island. The states that don't have a lot of population, a lot of size, they're going to know we're nowhere near as big as New York or Virginia. So we're going to get create an army first, and we're going to create a very uh, militaristic posture, and and we're also going to create give a lot of power to the military to make up for our weak our weakness in population and land size. We have to be the most aggressive in having the most capable military. And that's how we're going to overcome the size of the larger states. And so he says the smaller states are going to be so much better at their war readiness, they'll be able to beat larger states uh, from being better trained and better prepared. But the pride of the bigger states won't let them just swallow that defeat, and they're eventually then going to go and resort to the same measures as the smaller states. And then everybody's going to have standing armies. They're always going to be at war. And... They're all going to be giving power over to these military complexes or these military groups in order to save themselves from the dangers of the nearby aggressive states. He says, look, he being Hamilton, he says, these aren't just wild theories of mine. This is how human history shows things are done. He says, you know, look at Europe, how it's been over there. There's always a war. He says, you know, once you have states at war, liberty suffers. And more and more power is going to be given to a strong executive because you need a strong executive to win wars, and then liberty's out the window. Then, sort of as a side segue towards the end of the paper, he says, "Oh, well, wait a sec. I know you're thinking, why didn't it ha- this happen in Greece? Greece was a bunch of small uh, city states. Why didn't this happen there?" And he says, "The people of Greece, sort of unusual arguments. The people of Greece, they were just too busy being hardworking and industrious to really bother with fighting." They were just too busy being good citizens, making money. And they didn't have the organized financial system that we have now, now being colonial times from when time is talking, to create standing armies like kings do now. Um, and then finally, he says uh, there's different types of armies when ta- armies need to be created. He said there's the armies where you have relatively secure countries that don't face interior threats. And when he uses the word interior, he doesn't talk about internal insurrections. He's talking about our enemy army strong enough to breach the borders and get into the interior of the country. He says, you know, it's not a big deal if you have a war, they attack your borders, maybe you lose some border territory, but you push them back. Uh, it is a problem when they get into your interior. He says those countries that are, have secure interiors, they're not worried. You know, they, they can have a small army because it's enough to, it's enough to keep them secure and it, they also, because they're secure, it's less. It's the people don't accept infringements on their liberty as much, and the military is not a higher caste or a higher, you know, strata than civil society. Whereas countries that are insecure, that often have other enemy countries rampaging all over their land, they have to have larger armies to be ready to defend themselves at any time. Uh, soldiers become more important than other citizens. Military concerns outweigh civil. And then the people uh, often have their rights weakened or suspended for the sake of national security and are gradually subjugated to the military. And in closing, he basically says, the secure country is a country like Great Britain. It's protected by water on all sides. 
So they don't have to maintain a large army. When they are attacked, they have plenty of time to raise their army. And because of that security, they can have more liberty. Uh, they don't have to become a military state. And here in America, if we're all together under the Constitution, we could be the same way. Whereas if we are like Europe and divided against each other, all in the same landmass, we're insecure, and it's going to be military states all across North America. And uh, I know it was a little bit longer than our usual five minutes, but uh, there's a little, few different few uh, different layers of that onion that Hamilton lays out. No, I think you did a great job there of breaking it down. So where where do you want to take uh, take it from here? How do you want to kick off our or dive into things. Well, I just think it's interesting, first of all, that he uh, he uh, he creates this sort of <laughs> as a paper. It sort of reminds me of a uh, some of the apocalyptic television that's popular right now. You know, like zombie television shows. Oh, yeah. The world's overtaken by zombies, or yeah. there's some other mysterious yeah. thing that's ended society as we know it. The prepper and people TV just programs. Scrambling yeah. at the edges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. that, that's the feel of the paper yeah. to me. It's sort of. Uh, Apocalypse fiction, Nostradamus esque, right? Yeah, he's just, yeah, huh? You know, I hadn't thought about it like that. And once again, you got to be thinking these New Yorkers must have been terrified of Vermont because Vermont was the one that <laughs> was on their border, and they're like, look, if we uh, if we don't if we don't do something, these Vermonters are going to ground us yeah. up and put, turn us into their ice cream. So wow. we need to we need to protect ourselves from Vermont. It's just getting too serious. Uh, Vermont is the uh, the scourge of the uh, colonial, why well, I you know I shouldn't say the scourge of the colonial, the scourge of, of of New York, the haunts him in You're New York. You're the Sparta of the states. Probably. Okay, yeah, maybe. <laughs> why well, you know this thing is around. I'm sitting here. I'm thinking. I'm 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 uh, based on our conversations before of uh, Rhode Island. Uh, you know, I could see Rhode Island just uh, according to your version of Rhode Island. I imagine you vis- envision Rhode Island of uh, you know licking its chops at becoming this great military power. Uh, you know, reading Hamilton's number eight, saying, "Oh yeah." We're going to gear up and just wreak havoc. <laughs> Rhode Island is clearly the Emperor Palpatine of the <laughs> Republic of Small States that they would be building up. I yeah. think in this apocalypse scenario, you would have Rhode Island get together with all the small states around it, like the Delaware, the Connecticut, and say, look, all the power you give us to control your militaries, we'll give it back as soon of course. as we're done. but. Vote us, the emergency powers, to protect yourselves. Yeah. So, no, all kidding aside, though, I mean, it's it's interesting the way Hamilton really just, it's all war all the time, right? You know, this whole paper talks about uh, just the way in which if we don't band together as a country, as a union, we're just hosed. You know, there's just no shot that we're not going to turn into another Europe in his mind. The fear is a powerful motivator. It, it really is. There's some it, some historical context, I think, that, you know, compared to number six, one of the things I found yeah. curious about this paper is in number six, he let, leaves no minor footnote, no Unturned. historical yeah. trivia left unsaid. Yeah. Whereas in this one, I feel like there's a lot he does leave unsaid because in, when you hear him saying, look, if everything falls apart, the people we've really got to be afraid of are not the big states like Virginia, but they're the tiny little scrappy guys like Delaware yeah. and Rhode Island and Connecticut and Massachusetts. Well, Massachusetts is probably not then, but you know, you take my point. 
Yeah. I mean, don't you find that to be surprising? Uh, we got to be afraid of the little guys and not the big guys. Well, on the point of number six where he just hits us uh, nonstop with one reference after another, here he almost takes for granted that you have a uh, the reader has a good grasp of the world history, right? Exactly. So, like, he goes, hey, look, hey, you know, it's the old world, and look what happened over there. And, exactly. you know, I feel like the guy, the guy who wrote number six would have given us a litany of examples of wars and conflicts and obscure little insurrections yeah. from one country into the next. And here he is two papers later, and he's, you know, just assuming that uh, anybody who reads anything, uh, uh, reads this one, knows exactly what he's talking about. It just, the gear shift in, in the way in which he writes uh, is noticeable. I don't know what drove it. Um, I think part you know. of it is here he's relying on more, on history that's more recent for the people of the time. Yeah. Um, and I want to specifically call out and mention the reason I think it wouldn't sound ridiculous to his readers that the small states are the scariest, like it mm -hmm. might to us now, Yeah. is that at, at the time he could be talking about the country of Prussia. Prussia is a major and rising power at this time. I, I just know that I've done some reading into Prussia. Uh, Prussia was one of the smaller countries in Europe. Uh, and, and you know, of course, Prussia eventually folded into Ger Germany as a whole when Germany was united. It was one okay. of the smaller countries in Europe. Okay. But militarily, it was a giant. It was it, – it, it, it conquered a lot of territory under Frederick I and under Frederick II, Frederick the Great. Okay. Um, and the way they did that – and this is why I think that his arguments about the small states being dangerous isn't ridiculous – Prussia was tiny, it had a tiny economy, but its rulers managed the entire state for the benefit of the military. They they organized everything around the military, you know, getting them as much resources as possible for the military. They knew, I mean, a modern analogy might be, a more modern analogy might be the state of Israel. Okay. You know, they knew they were a very small country surrounded by a lot of larger countries could, that could destroy them at any moment. And right. so the only way they could deal with that was they had to make security a number one priority. Constant they had to have the best yeah. military. They had organized everything around the military. And as a result, um, Prussian military campaigns at the time were just you know, considered to be amazing. They were you know, considered to have the best army in Europe at the time. Under the Frederick II, uh, I think they at least I think they doubled their land size because they were that tiny country – who all they did was was fight. All they did was, you know, war was what they did. And when they fought some, when they, they were sort of the Spartans of their time. So even though there wasn't that many of them, when they went to war, they did it wholeheartedly. And so that's, and I've mentioned that to say that it was happening right then. Frederick II what ruled Prussia from 1740 to 1786. Okay. And so that's right during that same amount of time. And it's something that, Readers with any knowledge of European politics at the time, it was happening right then. It would be probably as well known to them, to people interested in that kind of history, as current events in other parts of the globe would be to, to readers or viewers now. But okay. I just wanted to mention that to, to explain, yeah. I think, why, because it, it sounds ridiculous. They're just the, uh, the, the pit bull of uh, Europe at the time, ready to take they on anybody. <laughs> they are the Sparta of their time. Sparta, okay. Israel, whoever have yeah. you, the small state that... Uh, is has outsized power for uh, you know uh, its population and land size. Okay, 
So jumping back here, you know, I think the first couple uh, pages of this paper kind of speak for themselves. I don't know that there's a whole lot there. You know, Hamilton kicks off and says right off the bat, look, you know, there's going to be war between the states. And we talked about right now, we've been talking about how the little guy is going to arm up first and they're going to get really into it and because they're going to feel like they have to, lest they be overrun uh, and the yeah. Empire State becomes the Empire State, uh, you know, for literally. And maybe that, you know, maybe that's you part know. of it. The fact that he's writing this to the people in New York, because at first glance, they might think to themselves, OK, everything falls apart. We're New York. You know, yeah. what are we worried about? Well, we're probably one of the people who's going to be establishing a, a an empire among our smaller, weaker allies. So, hey, that's not so bad for us. So maybe he has to make a stronger case to say, no, actually, those yeah. small, scrappy states could really uh, put a dent in us. Watch out for Rhode Island. That's really what yeah. the message is. always watch out for Rhode Island. <laughs> so, uh, and then, you know, he says, hey, look, that's not going to last very long before they start arming up. But, you know, there's a, a paragraph here about a third of the way into the paper that kind of caught my eye that thought was really interesting. And he starts off and says, this picture is not too highly wrought, though I confess it would not be, uh, it would not long remain a just one. And this is what he said I thought was interesting. Uh, safety from external danger is the most powerful director of national co conduct. Even the ardent love of liberty will, after a time, give way to dicta its dictates. And he concludes by saying that paragraph, To be more safe, they at length become willing to run the risk of being less free. And so when I read that, uh, I'll give you a little anecdote. Yeah. When I was in law school back in the early 2000s and, you know, I was uh, taking criminal procedure. Yeah. It was uh, criminal procedure one. I had a great professor. Uh, did not like that class. See, I, I love that stuff. But yeah, it was right, uh, you know, during the Iraqi war um, and yeah. the Afghanistan war that led into the Iraq Gulf war. War one or two? No, no, no. Uh, this is the the uh, W presidency. Okay, the more recent. Uh, Gulf War uh, two. Gulf War two. Yeah, and we're reading over some of the uh, criminal procedures and guarantees of citizen uh, the rights of citizens of the United States. And all of these uh, things that had supposedly been decided a very long time ago. And in the news around that time was uh, the case of uh, Jose Padilla. Okay. Um, and you have to jog my memory on him. Well, this one kind of hit close to home because he was a, a, a U.S.-born citizen. That's what made this one really interesting. Uh, who was accused by the Bush administration, the federal government at the time, to have been involved in a plot to uh, release a dirty bomb. And he was arrested at uh, O'Hare Airport up there in Chicago. Okay. Oh, okay. And so was not, that during the time you lived in Chicago? Uh, when, uh, 2002 is uh, is is when it happened. I actually moved up in 2003, but a lot of the litigation was ongoing okay. while while I was there. You know, I forget a lot of the exact nuances of the case because it was convoluted. But the thing that really caught uh, a lot of the my attention at the time, being you know the you know when you're in law school and you're reading everything in the textbooks and everything is very ideal and idealistic and the way that that uh, and distant, distant and distant yeah because you're in the safety of being in the classroom and, and and whatnot the 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 thing here is this is a u.s born citizen they made the bush administration alleges it was going to detonate this radiological bomb or dirty bomb um and the thing that really caught uh the attention was that he spent uh, a few years in a uh a navy uh brig while they uh were litigating as to whether or not he was eventually going to come around for trial. Well, long story short, I, I mean, he so alleged... Was he, being, was he being held without being even charged of anything? Yeah, like, that's the thing. They never actually brought him to trial on the radiological bomb. 
Um, okay. uh, ultimately, his attorneys filed a habeas petition. A habeas corpus. Um, habeas corpus, yeah, petition yeah. to get him, because at this point, you know, it's, he's been in custody for several years. And yeah. it bounced in, in and out of the appellate courts. And eventually, basically saying, charge him or release. Try him or try him or leave him. Let him go. You can't hold. Him. He's a U.S. citizen. And and uh, the Supreme Court of the United States was set to take up the uh, habeas corpus petition. But right before that happened, he was indicted by federal authorities in the state of Florida. Bush administration and federal government said, "Hey, his habeas petition's moot." <laughs> so, you know, a little bit of a shell game. It you know. And so he, he, he spent a lot of time being held on suspicion of being involved in this radiological plot uh, or a radiological bomb plot, but then never actually was tried or convicted of any involvement mm-hmm. in it. Um, well, I mean, I understand as far that's as I know, uh, you know, similar situation to a lot of uh, Guantanamo detainees. Yes. You know, but, about. So, and, and yeah. And, but the thing about this one that really kind of, I remember at the time being more interested in it was because. Hey, this is a U.S. born citizen arrested on U.S. Yeah, soil. It's not a, a so combatant. it's not a foreign combatant. It's not someone who's, uh, or even a U.S. citizen that's gone abroad and fighting in a, a different theater against U.S. interests, right? This is uh, yeah. domestic in every way. And and so I remember so, confronting. And how much do your constitutional rights mean? Yeah. So, like. When push comes to shove. When push comes to shove. So, you know, I remember, conf- you know, being very idealistic at the time and, and, and a law school student and, and reading all this great case law written over the last 200 years on various things. And I, you know, confronted my, my law professor at the time. And I said, look, we're reading all these things in the criminal procedure book. And they seem to have been decided, but then the practical rubber meets the road. I'm looking at this Padilla case and, you know. Was he able to soothe your mind? Huh? Well, no, but he, what he said to me was, you know, in, in times of war, because we were at war at the time, uh, you know, people tend to favor safety and security so much and liberties and things kind of kind of uh, slide by the wayside. And I remember thinking to myself, like, God, that's, you know, that's so terrible. Constitutional protections ease in time of security. And that's yeah. what Hamlin's really talking about and, here. And here I am reading, reading. that's my point, is that I'm here, I'm, I'm reading this, uh, this Federalist number eight, and I, I hear in Hamilton echoes of what my uh, professor told me, you know, a decade earlier, a decade ago. Uh, here it is being, I'm rereading it now and the same sentiment is being, is coming back to me. Uh, but by, is he saying that? Is he saying that? Cause I think he's saying the opposite. Well, I mean, I think what this echoes is, and I think this is again, the, what Hamilton leaves unanswered. This echoes his earlier paper where he talked about how, well, we can't let all the states have all the power because Corrupt and ambitious men are going to be running to be, you know, the the, the main power in, in these states. We want to have everything consolidated under the federal power, where only the best and the brightest and most meritorious men are going to be. And I think at the end of that episode, we ask the question: What's to stop those? What's to stop the power hungrier and, and ambitious men to try to become the head of the federal government? And similarly here, Hamilton is saying. Well, this is the problem with the states. The states, if you let the states have all the power, then they're going to take away all your liberty because they're going to be always at war. And when they're at war, you're not going to have any liberty that you're used to in these states. So you got to consolidate into a federal power so that you can save your liberty. And it's, But it's the same question. Why is that a uniquely state problem? What's to say the federal government can't get at war and the same process happened. I mean, Hamilton, 
in Hamilton's paper, he thinks that the federal government preserves liberty. Only the states are going to give it away. That, that was my read of it. Okay. On the uh, Padilla summary, I'm looking at, not to backtrack too much, but uh, it looks yeah, like... If there's any facts you want to set straight, I'm, I'm, yeah. not as, I have, I'm not as familiar with his I only remember uh, some stuff from the news back then, but was he, yeah. he he was eventually released, wasn't he? Or am I off on that? Well, no, he, I mean, he was transferred. He was indicted down in Florida and, and he was convicted down there and he's, I mean, he's still in prison. All of a, you know, of a different offense. It's a wholly different offense, wholly different fact pattern. And the real key about the case and why this case was so interesting and so important and still is so important is that he, Jose Pedia is a U.S. born citizen, natural citizen, born on U.S. Uh, territory arrested in U.S. territory, and the Bush administration labeled him as an enemy combatant. And based upon that labeling of him as an enemy combatant, held him in a military brig for several years. And then ultimately, he, Mr. Padilla, was never actually charged upon any of the facts that justified the basis of his labeling, being labeled an enemy combatant and being held by the Bush administration in the Navy brig for several years before he was ultimately indicted in Florida and transferred to Florida, prosecuted in Florida based on a wholly different fact pattern. Um, you know, that was the part that was, you know, concerning to say the least. Um, yeah. And I, and I, you know, I definitely understand what you're saying. I you think know. you hint at really the elephant in the room here in this entire paper, which, you know, which is, What's to say these same problems can't be true of America as a united country as they are of the individual states yeah. um, as independent actors? Yeah. You know, I you could really ask the question of some of these things that he's talking about here of the state, you know, the the, the nations, you know, the political entities, you know, being more and more centered on military priorities. You know, those are good questions that yeah. can be asked about. You know. Why and, can't the, is that true? Has that been true of the United States as a country at times? Well, you know, what's interesting is, again, when you hear and you read this paper now, Hamilton, I mean, he talks about a balance, right? You've got you've got these two types of militaries that you can have. And he references Great Britain and he says, look, Great Britain's got this great big military, but it's primarily a Navy and it's insulated because it's because it's, you know, has an ocean as its first barrier and you know, once you land on, if you were to try to invade Great Britain, you would land and you would very quickly run into problems. And it's hard to land you know. there at all because back then it's hard to cross the English English Channel. Yeah. So. And land a military. Force. But domestically, they did not have a very big military industrial complex, right? And that the people. It was mainly the Navy. It was. The Navy. And, and the people. Uh, and so their liberties uh, were very much protected because domestically. Um and there was not a large standing army in proportion to the size of the population. And that's right. one of the Hamilton points. Is yeah. If military, if the army is small compared to the size of the population, the population, if they were all united, could rise up against them and win. Yes. And and conversely, the other – and he says, you know, if, if we band together as a union, we'll reap the benefit uh, much like Britain has uh, where, where we'll be all the way over here. We'll have this ocean as a barrier and distance, and we'll have that isolationism to basically, you know, have an army as needed, but it won't need to be this dominant thing uh, where everybody turns into Sparta states, eventually, essentially, and you have these militaries. Because to Hamilton, the idea, 
the Atlantic Ocean is such a vast body of water. Yeah. To him, it would be ridiculous to think that wouldn't be a sufficient barrier um, that would, you know, dramatically reduce the need for a, a standing army. You know, yes. he couldn't see 100 years, 200 years into the future, see how advancing technologies shrank the size of the world. Shrinks, it does. So the uh, the point that I wanted to make, though, is where Hamilton discusses the countries that have the large military complex in place. Mm -hmm. uh, he talks about, uh, let me find the right part, part. The inhabitants of the territories, uh, often the theater of war, are unavoidable, unavoidably subject to the frequent infringements on their rights, which serve to weaken their sense of how the, of those rights. And then he goes on, it is very difficult to prevail upon a people under such impressions to make a bold or effectual resistance to usurpation supported by the military power. Now, interestingly here, I was reminded of Eisenhower's farewell address to the uh, United States. the military-industrial complex. Yes, yes. And for the... Um, I think he coined the term, actually. He, may, he may have. But let me read a bit uh, for people in case they don't have a hammerlock on it. <laughs> I want to find the right, the right spot. So our military organization today bears little relation to that known by any of my predecessors in peacetime or indeed by the fighting man of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States has had no armaments industry and American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisations of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armament industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjecture of immense military establishment and large, sum, large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economical, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are involved, so is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisitions of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democracy, democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. So, you know, here you have Hamilton discussing the very thing, saying this will result in a suppression of liberty and you know, 150 years later, you have Eisenhower in a farewell saying, we're there. We are now transitioning into this place where unlike any other time in American history, we are going to have a large standing military at the ready at all times. And, but and if we, I may, let me stand up and defend the military. Oh, hey, look, <laughs> I'm not – and to the listeners, Don't we need them? I mean, wait, wait, absolutely. you know, we're not going to be able to fight off uh, nuclear warheads with uh, – Daisies and I, uh, I understand. Hey, now hold on. Don't I, 
before you you you, you, well, you just, the wrong way. Listen, spout long-haired hippie uh, propaganda. I, I, I'm not. <laughs> I feel like somebody's got to step okay. up and, hey. and help these helpless uh, tank manufacturers. Listen, and, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not anti-military. I'm not. I'm really not. Okay, <laughs> it's the reality is is I mean I grew up in a military household. Okay, I was a Air, Air Force kid. Okay, and and I'm proud of it. All right, um, but what Hamilton's talking about and really is, is I think saying we should try to avoid by becoming in a, by being in a union where we're at and having this distance and separation from Europe, we're going to have a certain amount of isolationism and we're going to be able to prosper in that environment. And we won't have to have this, uh, huge military complex. We eventually get to the point in American history here with Eisenhower saying where he's saying, look, we're there now. We've got it. And so how does Federalist 8 still guide us now uh, in today's light? And the takeaway I take from Federalist number eight is that unions are the best unions between states are the best deterrent from outside forces. And at the time when Hamilton's writing the Federalist number eight, he's saying how, you know, we got to band together to make sure we don't one fight amongst ourselves. But if we come all together in one union, that in and of itself will be a deterrent from someone being, uh, you know, essentially dumb enough to try to uh, risk their own demise by attacking us. We're now in a situation, and you look at how important unions, what type of role the American Union played with our allies in World War I and World War II. Okay, it's when we banded together with other nations that we were able to fight off. But you see how fragile that is, too. I mean, look, I mean, if if you want to solve America's problem, solve Europe's problem. Because yep. Europe is the example he gives. These countries that are continually squabbling, but they weren't uh, fighting because they can't get along, and they still can't. They still can't unite. I mean, you got England well, leaving Europe. The European Union. I'm getting there. Give me, give me a second. I'm okay. getting there. All right. So what I was going to say was, saying, if you could solve Europe's problems, you could solve America's problems. Well, here's so the I'm thing, though. I, we, so we, I need you to solve Europe's problems. We, we, okay. But look, United States with NATO all through the Cold War, okay, protected her interests. And, and for a period of time, the United States and the Western world were, were united in the fight of against uh, terrorism. And now, where we're at today, those unions, to a degree, I mean, not as... To maybe, a degree. Okay, sorry. But my point is, is whatever degree they were united, it's slipping away. And and mm-hmm. the Western allies and, and, and the uh, NATO being bonded with America, uh, you know... Those things are weakening now, and what do we risk with weakening uh, unities? Since Hamilton's saying you got, we, well, I think you put you got to have you got to have the union to secure our interests and secure our 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 protections of liberties, and 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 in the sense at the time, yes, that applied to the col- the colonial states that he was forming into the Constitution, but it, throughout history, when America's interests have been most threatened. We've been able to secure those through formation of unions, not just with our states within ourselves, but with other countries. And and we're I reaching. Put your finger on it, though. And I wanted to highlight no. that fact. Go ahead. That you can draw a parallel between what Hamilton is dealing with here and in his paper and some more modern issues. You know, you talked about NATO and the unity of NATO and your unity of the Western Alliance. Yeah. Uh, and how that unity was most strong when the threat was strongest, you know, when they, there was a, the fear of the evil empire, the Soviet Union, yeah. the communist power taking over the whole world. 
similarly, that is what, uh, in a way, Hamilton's trying to use to motivate the reader of his paper in saying that there's this threat, it's out there, and it's going to destroy all of you. And it's interesting that I feel like he's playing a two-sided game here. Uh, ostensibly, he's trying to act like he's he's trying to uh, market to the better angel of their natures of, oh, they just love freedom, they want to make sure that they're free. Whereas, in reality, I feel like just the very, very, not very far beneath that layer, he's not hiding the fact that he's saying, look, it's not just your liberty, it's your safety. You know, it's not just that they're going to come in and you're going to have as much freedom to practice your religion. They're going to come rampaging across your land and take everything. Um, so, but he, to, to make his argument work, he has to really build up that threat. Um, to make them terrified, not only of, you know, uh, not, not just mildly worried about an argument about a land dispute between uh, two states, but that they're actually going to end up in a shooting war. And that shooting war is going to really bleed over until it's on their front porch. I'm sorry. I kind of lost it there for a minute. Well, I'll let it back. <laughs> it's an emotional issue. It's a emotional yeah. topic. It is. It is. And I don't, I don't know. I, I think I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'll edit that piece I want to draw one. Yeah, draw in a, a, yeah. Just a little, one more historical tidbit. Of, yeah. uh, it would have been interesting to see what this paper would have looked like if Hamilton would have written it 15 or 20, 20 years later, after the age of Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars. Because... That sort of changed everything. Um, Europe at the time, it was, like Hamilton said, where you had these relatively small professional armies. There wasn't general conscription where everybody joined the army in time of war. You had people who, that was their job. We are soldiers, and that's a very small percentage of people. And then a lot of them just you know, sat around these forts. And this was the era of what are called bastion forts or star forts, uh, forts were really uh, perfected to, uh, with uh, these intricate designs. Uh, there was a guy named Valbon, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, he's a French guy, who uh, just was exceptional at fort design. And these forts were not just forts up on a hill with some soldiers in it. They were around entire cities, entire towns and cities. And so it's accurate what Hamill would say is if you went into somebody's country and tried to take their cities, yeah, it wouldn't take many people in this fort to protect everything and where it would take you months and months and months, maybe years to take a few forts. And so you spend all this time money mustering this enormous army. You take almost no land. Anybody who lives more than a few miles into a country doesn't barely notices that there is a war. And so that really highlights, okay, they feel secure and it was just taken as a given. Mm -hmm. But you know, about a decade later, this guy named Napoleon comes along and, uh, he changes everything. Yeah. He conscripts the entire nation. He has armies the size that no one has seen before. Yeah. And he's not he takes over pretty much all of Europe, forts or no. And it was sort of uh, shook people to the core back mm -hmm. then because it upset all of their assumptions. And post Napoleon, could he have written could Hamilton have written this? Because Napoleon went in and he just took entire countries. And he just rolled right past forts. And he didn't just stop at the borders. 
he went well into the interior yeah. and changed everybody's assumption. In fact, he was scornful of this very idea that Hamilton puts out there of, oh, we're going to put all the military force in a secure state. We'll just put all of our military around the border. And that'll protect us all, and they'll be out of the interior, so they won't bother the people who live there. And they're going to just bounce – all the military attacks are going to bounce off. There's a, a possible, there's a, a story Napoleon talks – a story told about Napoleon, and maybe some people have heard it already who are listeners. But I find it amusing, so I'm going to tell it, where uh, Napoleon had given one of his generals some military forces and asked him to conduct a, a campaign. And so the, the general – gets Napoleon in a room, he shows him the map, he shows him where he's equally distributed the entire army he's been given all around the border of France, all on the borders. And he says, there, I've protected our country from attack. And Napoleon laughed at him, he says, what are you trying to do, stop smuggling? He says, I gave you this forest to protect to uh, protect France, not to stop smuggling. The idea being that, to Napoleon, that, that strategy was a joke. Yeah, you've got to pull your army back a little bit uh, and not protect land, you're protecting the whole country as a whole. If you put up the, if you put it on the border, then an attacker will just breach it and then get behind it and disassemble you from the rear. Uh, the Germans did that in World War II in their blitzkrieg tactics, and then the, the uh, French did it in the Napoleonic Wars. But uh, Hamilton, uh, I think some of his assumptions would have been shaken by the realities of. Uh, Napoleon and his generals, uh, how they conducted the Napoleonic Wars, which happened, you know, from the late 1790s into uh, the early 1800s. Yeah, because well, Napoleon's forces were pretty good at getting into the interior. They were. They were. I Could Hamilton still write it? I think yes. But, I mean, you make a good point. There's, there's obviously been uh, – well, I mean, you know – yeah, because it's not like Napoleon was the first conqueror of a large landmass. I mean, Ham Hamilton would have obviously known about, uh, you know, Rome and the Greek empires and how far they yeah. went into other states. Uh, you know, it. I don't know. I I, I think he does seem to discount them, the Roman and Greek powers, as being sort of not on the same league and level as European powers uh, and their armies of the. Uh, um, within 17th century to 18th century because they didn't have the same sophisticated financial system mm -hmm. as those European countries did. But the, the, the real thrust of this paper is got to unite to protect freedom and liberty because otherwise the United States will end up like Europe because yes. we'll be fighting against each other and the pressures of military needs are going to overwhelm civil freedoms. And so we gotta do it. And at the time, I'd say, I definitely see his point. I think to the modern reader, the frightening question to ask is, because the world has changed since then, and the Atlantic Ocean doesn't mean what it used to mean, as far as a barrier from attacks, nuclear terrorists, etc. And now cyber. Yeah. It, um, are we in the situation of the states back then, of feeling the need to curtail our liberties for the sake of military security. And if we are, what do we do about that? And because uh, Hamilton doesn't really offer a comforting answer for us, you know, for the readers of his time, the answer is, you not, as you said, unite. And we won't have to con have conflicts because we'll all be this, the same common power. Uh, I mean, I, that's not really an answer for the United States today. 
You know, it's not well, going to be a united world government. So well, what's yeah, our answer? I mean, well, okay. So you want me to solve the current geopolitical crisis? Okay. If you could, I mean, I don't think <laughs> if I could, too much yeah. to ask. If that's not too much to ask, okay, well. I mean, you seem to yeah. have something to say about alliances, maybe? Or? Well, I guess the, the, the point that I was expand trying to... Expand on that. Yes. All right, expand on it, sure. Um, the point I was, I was going down, the road I was trying to go down before, was that at the time, Hamilton gives us the light that separating our... The states separating themselves individually would lead to a disastrous, just constant military and a disastrous uh, infighting and nothing, essentially perpetual war amongst the states. And that bonding together in a union to, to ward off outside threats would be the only way to ensure an, uh, a peaceful place of peace and respite at home to prosper. Yes, to okay. avoid the walking dead scenario mind zombies. Yes. So, you know, I, I think the same logic, I mean, it's, it's argued, I think it can be argued very well that the same logic can be held today. I know there's cyber threats and the threats are different. Who do right? we band together with, though? Who are we banding together with? Well, you, our closest allies. It has to be Europe. It has to be London, and, and you, which would be funny to Hamilton, I'm sure. You know, <laughs> but, you know. Hamilton seems to have more affection for Great Britain than some of the other founding fathers. Perhaps, but you know, so Europe, Western so, Europe, basically. Western Europe. I mean, it's, it's tie our go, you know, reaffirm and strengthen the traditional bonds in the sense of our bonds from the last 50, 60 years, and then go from there. Okay, but the question though is against who? Against who? Because that's that seems to be the key to get people to unite. Is the one against who? And then two, having a lot in common. You know, you got the United States at the time. The, the states at the time were homogenous. And you know, that's what, wow. one of the things Jake talked about. They were homogenous. Not homogenous. We've had that conversation. <laughs> yeah, okay. they were right. homogenous. But, 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 well, they had different products and they had different rivers. Yes. But they spoke the same language and similar culture. Okay, but well then, okay, then you start with that path. And you bond yourself to the other parts of the world that you have the most in common with. Which, again, would would for the most part be Western Europe, although at more and more would include, you know, certain Asian countries such as Japan uh, and Australia. Um, not, not that Australia is in Asia, but just going the other way, going West as opposed to East from, from the United States. I know Japan's got some weird game shows and anime stuff going on. You know, I, I can't wait to, I mean, I would <laughs> hope that one day I get to go to Tokyo Disney Seas and, and go over and see uh, Mickey Mouse in, in uh, so Tokyo. So obviously you're re you, you are ready to unite with Japan. The rest of us may not be. Uh, look, unite to a degree, right? I'm not saying that we're all one mass country, Europe, America, Canada, Japan, Australia, and uh, like this half, half, a, half a global alliance into one thing. But the reality is, is we have uh, information sharing networks with these partners, these global partners, and and and. Uh, but don't and, you find it to be intelligence sharing? That's the point, though. It's the it's the intelligence sharing global apparatus, intelligence sharing between our most trusted allies, which is what has been protecting us most recently. Uh, but since, isn't it undermined by the fact that Europe can't seem to do that with themselves, and they have much more of an interest to? I mean, how long has Europe been trying to get gain closer ties, and they're backtracking recently? I mean, if they can't do it with, among themselves, how much? What are our chances of having closer ties with them? 
they can't even seem to get along with Britain, and Britain's probably a lot more polite and uh, congenial than we are. I mean, I know that the stage is larger. You're no longer talking about 13 states not fighting with each other. You're talking about threats that are omnipresent and that are new and different and, and not around at the time of Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. But again, you can see the logic even then having work from Hamilton that he, he says unify to, prote- have, to pre- have protection is, is the thesis here. And it worked then. It worked in World War One. It worked in World War Two. It worked through the Cold War. So that's that's the thought. Okay, is is can Hamilton's theory of unification with allies to protect from outside threats work today? And so that's one question. The other the other thought that well, let's leave it there. And I have one other thing I was going to say. Let, when, let me, let's try to answer that question. Cause yeah. To, to me, I think the answer is a qualified yes, because number one. I think that history it appears that history showed that it can work as long as there is a clear and present danger type of threat. You know, the Soviet Union at the height of its power, and as soon as it stopped being such a dangerous threat, the alliance sort of went onto the shelf. Uh, I don't think terrorism has been enough to really unify the members of NATO, for example, as much as it, as the communism in the Soviet Union was. But and then number two, I think it's also ter- limited. Go ahead. Saying, <laughs> sorry, but but terrorism is different, right? Terrorism is not an existential global killer event like like a World War, you know, a hot nuclear. And war. that's why I think it's yeah. not as effective. Yeah, because it's not the same level of threat, despite the, the occasional really dramatic impact it will have on individual countries and people in those countries. Yeah. And, but number two, I think also the state of the alliances are also limited by the differences among the people being allied. You know, uh, with Hamilton and the arguments laid out in the Federalist Papers, Hamilton, the authors of the Federalist Papers, I think, weren't being very coy with the idea of they were advocating essentially full unity and that there were the, the differences that were going to persist with the states were going to be relatively minor ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas... Any alliance with other Western European nations, you know, I don't think you're going to get France to give up French, and I don't think we're going to agree to start speaking French. No. I think that's it, just a that's an entry level barrier right there. Okay, you know what? All you're telling me is that it's harder. It is. Okay, it is a lot but that, harder. But you know what? There's uh, I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to quote Tom Hanks from *The League of Their Own*. Okay, the hard is what makes it great. Okay, so if you can get there and if you can do it. How great could it be to find a way to unify without necessarily giving up um, individual individuality, uh, right? Because I mean that's really what the European Union is, right? Uh, and that's the conflict where where the countries still want to be countries in and of themselves, yeah. But they want to reap the benefit of having some sort of unified federal power. And that's why they can't system. do it. That's why well, they can't do it. I know. Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, they're basically you know, stuck at that Articles of Confederation, Confederation stage. Yeah. So I think we both agree then that it can't be done. So well, I, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so provided then that it I can't just, be hey look, no. there's no crying in baseball, we just need to move on. Okay. We right. move on. Well So assuming it can't be done, <laughs> okay. assuming you can't we can't now unite and form international Voltron to protect ourselves from all threats uh, that we might encounter on Earth or 
elsewhere. Well, well since we're bringing how Japan we into it, it, then yeah, we're bringing Voltron. Yeah. Okay. How do we how do we counter the tendency of the countries that he brings up? How do we counter the tendency of the military to resort to take Destroying over liberty? to become a higher higher level, a higher case to undermine civic freedoms and to basically make democracies less democratic? How do we I do that? Have, I have no I idea. Think, I, I have I have no idea how we go about doing it. I don't think Hamilton's the guy who looked to for an answer on this well, one. He, you know. he creates the problem. He makes it to be an overwhelming problem. It suits his purposes. It's it's uh, yeah. it's a, it's much more troubling for us now because we're in a different situation. But for him, it's his crowbar he uses to get people to okay. – to pry them uh, loose from their state loyalties into national loyalties. But Hamilton says, look, if, if you're not unified, you've got those little individual states. They're going to be so worried about having uh, being run over that they're going to basically militarize themselves. And then you're going to have the destruction of liberty and freedoms or at least the suppression of liberty and freedoms when you have such a focus on a, these mass standing armies. And then you look at ourselves today and you know what? We're – as a country, we're concerned. We're constantly worried. You got the war on terror that's been going on for 16 yeah. years now. And what are we doing? We're we're chipping away, arguably chipping away at Fourth Amendment, you know, uh, and 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 individual privacy and individual liberties. And you know, I, I mean, you can. We're behaving just like well, not just like, but there are similarities in our national behavior today as what Hamilton predicted. The citizens of the individual states would behave like, uh, you know, and he he talks about again, you know, I think I said it once, but in in the areas, you know, that that the inhabitants of the territories mm-hmm. that are often the theater of war are unavoidably subject to the frequent infringements on their rights, which serve to weaken their sense of those rights, and by degrees the people are brought to consider the soldiery not only as their protectors but as their superiors, and look how because they're desperate. Because they're yeah. desperate. You know, and the transition from this disposition to that of considering them as masters is neither remote nor difficult. But it is very difficult to prevail upon a people under such impressions to make a bold or effectual resistance to usurpations supported by the military power. And, you know. So Hamlet's message is basically don't be desperate. Be safe. Yeah. Don't uh, don't lose a war. Don't get yourself in a situation where you might lose one. So. um but in its in a way, that message again reinforces the strengthening the military. Because how do you how do you protect yourself besides just oceans and stuff? Well, you make your military stronger. Um, so no one can even come close to attacking you because you're so much stronger. You have the a larger military than yeah. the next three or four countries combined, and that way you don't have to worry about you know it. What? No one had a chance. I've got it. I've got it. It just hit me. Carrie, What's your I, answer? I've got What's the and answer? The answer to the United States of America's uh, geopolitical problem. You give Co- your answer. All right, then I'll give mine. Here we go. Then we go into final thoughts. Colonize the moon. We're all moving to the moon. We're leaving everybody else behind. <laughs> we're taking all the resources we want up there. <laughs> so and we're the done just, with Earth. <laughs> okay. The just an answer to space program. <laughs> space the problem. All right, yeah. I'm going to give you the carry answer. Right. Isolationism. Instead of an ocean, you've got an ocean of space. Too much bureaucracy in this. It's not going to work. I don't. I don't have faith right now in them. Um, I'm just tongue in cheek. Tongue in cheek. Just messing. I don't think Hamilton has the answer. 
I no, think there. He does. I think there are two individuals who might though. Okay. Who? They are. Um, Thomas More. Okay. No, they are Thomas Hobbs and Alan Moore. All right. Uh, first of all, Thomas More. Or Th- Thomas Hobbs. Yeah. Uh, author of The Leviathan. I think we talked about it in another episode. We did. Where he talks talks about basically in a nutshell how. Uh, you got to stay out of the, the state of nature where life is just horrible and everybody can destroy everything you have for no reason at all at any time. And yeah. so the only reason, way you could do that to avoid that is to give all of the power to this absolute ruler, the Leviathan, who can do basically whatever they want to, but they'll keep you safe. The Leviathan. That, you know, that's, that's really, again, what Hamlin's getting at. But then Alan Moore author of any uh, graphic comics, graphic novels, particularly Watchmen. Yes. Who I believe we discussed this movie before. Yes. You know, the idea of uh, you've got all these superheroes uh, and they're all doing all these crazy things and sometimes they go off the hook and, and screw everything up. Uh, but the message of that graphic novel slash film slash whatever uh, is that one of the reasons uh, – Alan Moore wrote that was he felt that we were getting to a time in America where people were relying too much on flawed heroes to take care of things for them so they didn't have to do them themselves. Mm-hmm. And so the regular people felt like they didn't have to take responsibility. Now, obviously, there aren't superheroes flying around in caves or anything, yeah. but – you know, some of these icons in, in American history, not even icons, you know, just people, the you know, your political messiahs today. Are, oh, you know, we've elected this guy, you know, whether that for you is Donald Trump or Barack Obama or JFK or FDR. Oh, this person knows it all. They're so wonderful. All we have to do Trust is elect them, them yep. elect the superhero, the political superhero. Yep. And then, um, and they'll solve all of our problems. Yep. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's the answer. Alan Moore had the answer is, you know what? Even if there were superheroes, be they politicians or celebrities or whoever, you can't think that you're going to just all you have to do is hand the problems over to them. They're going to solve it. That's ridiculous. Go out half an hour at a ballot box is individuals not is not take responsibility. Yeah. And I think that should be Hamilton's message as well here as we go into closing, which is – and this should be our first T-shirt merchandise idea. Uh, between this episode and the next, our message to the reader should be take this two-week period and go America something. Take responsibility. Yeah. Go out and do something that Alexander Hamilton would feel like you as an individual person without handing it over to somebody else or doing something affirmatively to make America a better America that you want. And if, cause if everybody did that and just didn't hand it over to the superheroes to solve the problems, then that is probably the best way to stop bad things from happening. These particular bad things being, you know, everybody gives all the power over to entities that will reduce all of our freedom. You know, the way to stop that is by being more involved in better citizens. And by saying, by saying, go America something, I'm not talking about wearing some flag sway, putting the flag pin on, putting a flag on your yeah. on your car, putting or something like 
something like that, posting a really uh, awesome patriotic meme. I'm talking about real America, really going and going and doing some America, which is you go and you learn some more about what it means uh, to, you know, be the kind of America you want to be. What the founding fathers really intend? Increase your knowledge, increase your ability to 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 be that vision, uh, to go out in your community and make a stronger community. I think it sounds like such a small thing, but I think that's uh, that's the best answer I think we come up with at this time. Mm-hmm. So go America, something. Go America. Go America. Whatever it is, America the hell out of it. Yeah. Just <laughs> eagles and apple pie, man. <laughs> yeah. But you've got to, you've got to bake the apple pie yourself. Yes. You can't ask Barack Obama or Donald Trump to bake it for you. You've got to do it yourself. It's why, your apple pie. Why can't I get a federal America. subsidy to have someone else bake it and import it and I don't know. I'm just hey, mess around. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm okay if as long as you're the one who goes and fills out the federal grant paperwork to have the federal yeah government fund your apple pie. That's fine. <laughs> you take the action. If you if you set up the GoFundMe. To have the people send you the money yeah. to make apple pie and put a flag toothpick on it, that's fine. You've done it. Okay. You've done it. You've gotten your people together, but it's it's more than symbolism. Knowing it's how many symbolism. forms I would have to fill out to get a slice of apple pie from the federal government, I think I would have it would, it. <laughs> it would actually be more admirable if yeah. you filled out the paperwork. Than baking the pie myself. <laughs> You'd probably have at least four levels of bureaucracy to go through <laughs> to get an apple pie baking permit. Yeah, and then the import exports uh, you would need to get the pie bag. So, all right. I don't know how we're looking on time, but I get the sense that it might be good time to go and wrap up. Which is yeah, we are. Which yeah. is our, it's good. our typical what was the strongest points of Hamilton? Weakest points of Hamilton? Were they buying? And are you buying it? You want to start or me? Uh, I'll let you shoot. You go first this time. All right. I'll try to stay concise since I just got uh, off the soapbox there. So, strongest points, I I think it's almost a given what he says, which is that uh, conflicts between states, between nations, tend to strengthen the executive, and they t- tend to strengthen the military, and, yeah. and the cost paid for that is other domestic freedoms. It's hard to live in the world uh, and not see that. You don't need to know European history. It's, you know... The war, wars and history of the 20th, the 20th and 21st century will show you that. So strong points. And I, um, his weakest argument, I think we've been discussing it a lot, which is, uh, okay, just like your uh, argument about the best people being in the federal government, when why can't they be corrupt? Once here, here again, okay, what is to say these same problems that you're saying only exist with the states, which is to you know, that they're going to be sublimating the civil to the military. What do you do if that happens at the national level? He doesn't answer that at all. I don't think he even, I don't think he even considers that's a possibility. And maybe that's just a product of his time. Were the people back then buying it? Yeah, I think they were. I mean, they all knew what European history was like. Uh, you know, a lot of it had come from that warring states of Europe. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, there was a lot of German mercenaries on American soil that could be first-hand testament to the kind of warfare that uh, Europe engendered. 
Uh, and I think that they would have find, found Hamilton's message here terrifying. I think they would have really been motivated by it. I think it would have been motivated more by the personal safety aspect than the abstract freedom aspect. Am I buying it? Yes, I'm buying it. It's very convincing, but also disturbing. Because that last element of what do we do now, he didn't answer it. I think here in the 21st century, we have to answer it. Those are my thoughts. Justin? Yeah, I think his, his paper here, again, was a good one. From, from an argument standpoint, he stayed on track, stayed on target to, to pop culture reference. He didn't go off the rails like he, he did. He was the Jack Perkins of uh, the Federalist in this paper. He did not go off the rails like he did in, in Federalist number six. I think the people of, of the time would have looked at this and, again, read this and understood it for what it was and agreed with his point in his reference to Europe. Because really that's what he's saying here is like if we don't stick together, we're going to become another Europe. And if we become another Europe, there's going to be constant war between ourselves. And that's going to be bad for everybody. And, you know, you're not going to have the peace to be able to exist and farm your farm and raise your kids because there's going to be war down the street from you. And and I think the everybody who would have read this well, – not everybody, but I mean I think the general population at the time would have read this would have said absolutely – and, and the safety aspect of his argument would have been more appealing than the liberty aspect. I think it's a product of your and I's time that we're living in now where we've you know had all this safety our whole lives and we have mm-hmm. the luxury of thinking about liberties and, and personal freedoms um, where the things that he mentions here and he discusses those in, in, the, in the loss of liberty uh, are maybe we're very sensitive to and we see and we say, oh, man, you look at – here it is. Uh, it's ironic that, you know, Hamilton's advocating for the consolidation of power in, a, in one larger government and that that would be the uh, the thing that would lead to less militarization and and therefore the protection of liberty. <laughs> and, you know, because um, compared to today with the large industrial military complex and the concerns that a lot of people have, uh, some I'm assuming they're listening to this might have, uh, where you have the large military industrial complex is the biggest line item in the, in the budget, uh, is the military spending by far. And this, yeah, but I mean, it's just, (laughs) yes, thank you. Okay. Point taken. And the, (laughs) I'm going to be Dr. Semantics on you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Hey, why not? Right. (laughs) And, and, and what's that doing to our liberties? And I still think, though, that Hamilton's larger point that coming together, because I disagree with your belief and agreement with John Jay, which is that everybody was just homogenous and therefore the unity works so well. Okay, they were not the homogenous. Rivers. The rivers united us. The rivers and the trade yeah. and the land. It's like you know, but, it's almost like the Hulk Hogan thing where you said the prayers – the they hated each the other. Vitamins. I mean, okay, I don't want to say hated, but I mean, there was strong disagreement. Come on. Ripping his t-shirt off. The rivers, the train, the land. They were deep divisions between the peoples of the time. Yet, Hamilton said, you got to put those aside and bond together to a stronger bond together. And you'll find unity and pros- uh, prosperity and safety with that. And And yes, we have larger challenges today. And there's that unanswered question of how do we unify and bond with others around the world to increase our safety 
and thereby our prosperity with without losing our individuality uh, into some one massive global government. Unification and alliances has saw us through the Revolutionary War to a degree. It saw us through World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, and you know it, where are where we are today. I don't see bad, any. I don't see any precedent. Unified in. I think it was right in the middle of everything. What'd you say? There wasn't, wasn't there a war we were not too unified in. I was, think half it was like about fashion. Half of us wanted to wear blue, and the other half wanted to wear gray or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was. Yeah, there was that one little dust. That up might be one thing. In the middle of the that's, but that's slavery. I, I, I was what I was going to say was I can't think of a time where walking away from unification has led to better prosperity and increased safety for America. So, yeah. all right. And I guess that's where I'll leave it. I'm not saying I have any kind of solution or answer, uh, but all that said, I think Hamilton is, uh, is on his time. I think his, his themes worked then and I think they can work now, uh, I guess is where, where I'll leave that. Um, I guess we have a nice glass half full and a glass half empty opinion. Yeah. This one. Yeah. So uh, other than that, it's been uh, I think it's been a good one. Um, I, as always, Carrie, I enjoy hashing out things with you. Any any kind of closing yeah, it was, thoughts? Uh, nice this time. We had uh, some divergent. Uh, yeah. So um, I hope you'll have you'll probably be more right next time, but I think I got the better you this time. Huh? Oh come on! I, <laughs> yeah, just because you know. You just pair up with John Jay and think you're all good. You know, we're all homogenous, right? <laughs> well, I live in a state where my borders are secure and enemies won't get into the interior. So it's like I'm much more free of stress to develop. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I'm not too worried about any invasions coming through Canada. So I'm feeling okay where I'm at. <laughs> hey, Ohio's interior is wide open and exposed. All that flat land. Oh. You need some good old Kentucky Hills to protect you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Army should march right across Ohio, just like the glaciers. Just like Widely the glaciers. Known. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks again for, for all the listeners. Uh, wrap it up, I guess, before I go. Just remind everybody to check us out on iTunes and Podbean, Stitcher, uh, and other places you can find everywhere. us. Everywhere. Everywhere. Hit the uh, the subscribe button on iTunes, and if you could, just leave us a review. That'd be great as well. Try and get as many listeners as we can. I think that about wraps it up, Carrie, unless you got anything else. All right, we'll see you guys next in next episode, in episode nine, dropping about uh, two weeks from now. And then uh, episode 10, we might have a special guest join us since uh, episode 10 is uh, based on paper 10, which has a reputation as being one of the more important papers, although yes. we find them all. Well, they're all relevant. They're all important. That's the point of doing this uh, and not just hitting the highlights. But 10 does Number have... 8 has been a gem. It's been more exciting than I thought it was going to be. Definitely yeah. a little bit of a break from the theme of repetition. Yes. Yes. So, uh, well, we'll see everybody uh, on next time on uh, we're we'll, we'll talk about Federalist number nine. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.